Well, thank you, worship team. Are we on here? Good to see you this morning. Take your Bibles and turn again as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, men and women in the church. I know sometimes it's uh, kind of fun to chuckle at the differences between men and women. Things like, you've probably heard the statistics of how many words women say in average on a day and compared to men. Not that it matters because men don't listen anyhow. But our passage is clear and it's serious about the gender wars, you could say, that were taking place in the church in Corinth. Uh, 2,000 years ago, and though they're different, they really do echo uh, today. Uh, As the title indicates, this this is a passage about men and women in the church specifically. Um, Really, the next four chapters of our study of 1 Corinthians are about issues when the church gathers. Chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about, so when you guys get together, this is, this is like Sunday stuff. These are issues that were problems uh, at the time in the church. Sometimes people who are newer to Open Door make an observation that, uh, oh, the pastors are men and the elders and even the, the teachers in, our adult, in the adult Bible fellowships are, are all men, which is a little bit surprising to some in our culture. Um, Women lead here. The women lead and, and serve and uh, even teach in different, in different areas, but there are some things that are reserved for men. Uh, why is that? Southern Baptists, you may have read recently in the news a couple months ago, they actually removed several churches from their denomination because they had women pastors. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from this passage in 1 Corinthians as well as a number of other uh, passages and really kind of assumptions and, and references in, in Scripture that teach that, men, we need to step up and be spiritual leaders. It's true in the home, but this is specifically also about the church. So where does that leave women? Are they, are they somehow less valuable to God or to the church? Uh, short answer would be, of course, no. You see, our society tends to assume that positions equal importance. So governors are more important than mayors, presidents are more important than governors, etc. There's an assumption in culture that position equals importance. And this passage is not about who is most important, it's about who is most accountable. Who's accountable? And, and guys, it's really us. Um, the Milwaukee Bucks last season had the best record in the NBA, but they lost in the first round of the playoffs, and they fired the head coach. The head coach was held most responsible, and the, the Bucks stopped there. God appointed men to be head coaches. That's who we are. We're, we're head coaches, and uh, it's in church, it's in family. And if that issue, Paul, I think, is, is, Paul's writing this kind of like carefully too, right? If that issue of men being a leader was not uh, tricky enough, he's also daring to address what 
women wore to church in Corinth. Okay, so that's, that's getting sticky. And to get really, really current, what he seems, I think, to say is that men should not try to look like women, and women should not try to look like men. So that's what's, uh, that's what's setting the table here. It's almost like God inspired the Bible knowing just how weird his world might become. So verse 2, uh, the beginning of our passage, is a compliment, first of all, to the Corinthian church. And then he lays like a, a foundational verse in verse 3 to kind of lay a foundation for understanding uh, men and women in the church. Verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. He is affirming the fact that the Corinthian church, for all of its problems, cared about the Word of God. It says, I, I, I affirm that you care about following the teaching of Scriptures. And, and when you consider all that he had to, the sin he had to confront, the false teaching, this is a, this is a, a kind of a generous statement. To, but yet I assume that if you're gathering to worship Jesus Christ today, it's because you believe in the Word of God. You came to a Bible church about in worshiping Christ. And so whatever might surprise or might even raise questions for you today, we believe the Word of God, right? So then verse 3 is the foundation of this passage. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. God's leadership order, his leadership structure really in heaven and earth is, is described here. Did, did you catch the progression? Let's just try to just make it clear. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, referring to God the Father. He starts with, I think the order is significant. Scripture is inspired a certain way. Paul, I think, knows the sticking point will be in this passage that man is supposed to lead women. And so he starts out by saying, you know, men, it starts with you following Christ. You need to be under the authority of Christ. So if you think of this whole divine order, there's order in heaven, there's order in earth, but there's an intersection of heaven and earth, and that's when a man follows Jesus Christ, our eternal Savior. And if a man fails to grasp the utter submission that he must have to Jesus Christ, he will simply cause chaos wherever he tries to lead. If we are not under the authority of Christ, we will cause chaos in our families, we will certainly cause chaos in the church. And I think the reason why, understandably, women often question God's design is, that, is when key men in their lives have not really submitted to the authority of Christ because the whole plan of God, the whole passage, only works if men are in a humble relationship to Christ. Uh, this actually, back in verse 1, we, we included verse 1, I think, rightly with the previous passage uh, but it really is a tremendous um, transition verse. Mine says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, Paul says. Or you might have, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Did you see that order? And, and so while on one hand that was a great summary of what it means to glorify God, you're only going to glorify God, uh, chapter 10, verse 31, if you are following Christ. It's also introducing the fact that um, 
the only way you can lead men is if you submit to Christ. So young ladies, if um, you find a young man who is imitating Christ, his gracious, loving, um, sacrificial leadership, uh, he's a keeper. Head of the woman is the man. Here specifically, it's about church leadership. The New Testament never envisioned that uh, women would take leadership of the overall leadership of the church. Just a couple of uh, references. First Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or disputing. They were t- there to lead audibly in, in prayer and, and there to have that have holy hands, they're to have the holiness of their life. They're, they're not supposed to be marked by anger. They can't be people who are argumentative with everybody. So that's what a leader looks like. First Timothy 2, now the overseer, another elder, this is just a few verses later, is, a, is to be above reproach, the husband of one, but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, his children must, he must, he must. The pick... The picture is clear that they expect men to be the elders uh, of the church. Headship also, as you may know, applies in uh, the marriage relationship. Ephesians 5, we've looked at that previous times. And we've seen there that headship does not mean that men get their way. Headship means that men take responsibility to lead their wives in the marriage, Ephesians 5, 22 to 22 four or five, man is the head in the sense that he's supposed to be like Christ, loving sacrificially, doing what is spiritually best for his wife, for his family. That's, it's a sacrifice. It's not, it's not about getting your way. And likewise, in church leadership, any, any elder who says, oh, yay, I've got a position so I can, I can make the church do it my way, then they haven't understood what Christ says, what Paul says, or They haven't listened well to their wife either. So Paul assigns leadership uh, to men. The third phrase might surprise us because we might might look a little bit off topic. The head of Christ is God. But actually it becomes a perfect um, foundational statement that you realize that God has assigned a leadership and order in the entire universe because even Christ is subject to the Father. The head of every, the head of Christ is, is God. You might think, well, I thought they were, I thought the triune God was all equal, Father, Son, Spirit. They are equal. They're equal in essence. Uh, they are not different in, in value. One is not inferior, the other is superior. This is a distinction of roles and authority. Likewise, we see Paul and others teaching how Jesus submitted himself to the Father later on in 1 Corinthians. Then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. Jesus subject to Christ, and Christ's authority came from the Father. Given authority by someone who had authority in a role. Or have you even thought of these important salvation verses that way? For God so loved the world that he gave. The Father gave His Son. Next verse, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So the Father sends the Son, and the Son, in voluntary submission, says, yes, I will go to the cross. John 5, 
Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So the son follows the father. Or ultimately, when he went to the cross, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Do you see how Jesus submitted to the Father, though he was equal, not inferior, and he voluntarily submitted to the will, the plan of God. He was not forced. And likewise, what this is saying, I think, as an illustration, as a foundation of this passage, that women are to voluntarily follow the leadership of men in the church. Paul is about to discuss what women wear to church in Corinth. If there's ever a time to make sure your foundation is solid, it's if you're going to say something about what women should wear. So please understand where he's going here. So a couple of principles here about men and women, though, that I think uh, should be foundational to us. What does it mean? Because that's the kind of focus here. Authority brings accountability. God holds men more accountable since they are leaders. You just can't, you can't dodge that one. We are more accountable for how our homes are going. Men, we're more accountable for how the church is going. You, can't, you cannot have authority without accountability. God holds women accountable as well to follow godly leaders. Um, godly leaders are imperfect, so the men in your life are imperfect if you're, if you're married or if you're thinking as a function of the church. Uh, sometimes men can be really imperfect. What's it look like to honor leadership of imperfect men uh, is important because all men are imperfect, and that's tough. Uh, and you live in a tension of prayerfully trusting God with discerning how do you respect an imperfect man. If you can recall, though, in, if, if you are acquainted with Ephesians 5, where it says, wives submit, wives sub respect their husbands, and where it says clearly, husbands love your wives. It says, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, which was unconditional, right? Because the church is sinful, and yet God, through Christ, loved the church, his bride, unconditionally. So we, we often speak of unconditional love, but do you have to realize it works both ways? And so just as love must be, in, must be unconditional, even if a wife is, 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 is selfish or difficult or something, then it works the other ways too that Respect must be unconditional, even though a husband is selfish or difficult. So what does it look like to show an unconditional respect is the challenge? But this is about the church. And so let's go to the uh, kind of the head-scratching uh, part of this passage. Literally, it's about heads. Verse 4 to 7. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaped. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off, and if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, and implied it is, she should cover her head. Her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." Okay, moving on, because we have no idea what that means. No, <laughs> just kidding. Let's try to understand. I think, I think there's a basic point here. Men and women in worship should dress to respect their God-given roles. 
Men and women in worship should dress to respect their God-given roles. If a man prays or prophesies, or it's a woman, this is clearly about in the church gathering, right? Interestingly, both men and women are assumed to pray or prophesy in public. It doesn't say teach. That'll be another subject later in 1 Corinthians. But what should, what should a woman wear to church? Cover her head? Next Sunday, ladies, we're going to be, you can line up before the service. We're going to be passing out head coverings. A group of men are working to design them. Uh, there, are, there are churches, of course, that uh, have believed this is something for today. Uh, Amish, uh, black head coverings. Uh, some uh, Mennonite, uh, old Mennonite groups uh, wear, white, wear white head coverings. And in all seriousness, there are, there are some uh, Bible scholars I respect who really believe this is not just cultural, but this is uh, uh, something that women should wear something on their head uh, today. And I can respect that. I, don't, I actually do think it is uh, a cultural representation of them showing their respect by dressing distinctly as, as women. But what were these head coverings in the first century. There's, the evidence is a little bit cloudy, but there's basically four, four options that seem to surface. Uh, the first is that um, it could be saying that women should have long hair, not short hair. Uh, there is some evidence that uh, prostitutes, for example, wore short hairstyles. A second idea is that this is saying um, women should put their hair up in some kind of a I don't know, bun or something, um, because to let it hang loose in public was somehow a, an inappropriate thing to do in public. Uh, the third is that perhaps this means there should be a veil in front of the face, as some cultures practice in public, that there should be a veil. I actually believe it's most likely that it's a fourth option, that this is a, a woman's style of the day found in Greek illustrations and, and pottery and uh, sculptures and so forth, of something called a himation, which is essentially is like a shawl, I guess is, would be the term, like a little Red Riding Hood thing. Uh, it could also be formed by the clothing of the day was, was a loose outer garment. You could just take it and, and wrap it over your head, something, something like that. I think that's more likely. There are, there are two places that I, I can see in the Bible where men covered their heads, and in both cases it was a sign of of uh, disgrace or, or dishonor. Um, one was King David, 2 Samuel 15.30, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom in, in just such distress and grief. He covered his head. And then there's Haman, uh, the man when he found out he was condemned to die in the book of Esther, had his face or head covered in humiliation. So these were men in disgrace covering their head. And it would seem that culturally that... Uh, the head covering for a woman was not a disgraceful, but it was rather a, a, an expression, a voluntary uh, cultural expression of, of uh, humility. And perhaps it was the right thing to do in, in public in general, so it would, Paul say, be especially important, especially right that, that women would, would have that in the church setting as well. So why should a man then not cover his head? Is he not supposed to be humble, Right. Why would that be disgraceful? So often I think that Scripture is answered with best. Difficult passages are, are often uh, 
The answer is often found in the most simple answer. And it seems that the reason they shouldn't wear the head coverings as men is that they would look like women. And there's supposed to be a distinction. He's a man who takes responsibility before God. He doesn't want to look like a woman. He's a, he's a man who takes the responsibility of leadership and, and is, is, is not, he doesn't want to hide his masculinity. So why would he dress like a woman in church? He's a spiritual leader and he wants to be clearly identified, I guess. Likewise, why was a woman supposed to wear the covering? Was it some kind of a put down? Not at all. She's a woman who wants to look like a woman. Um, she's, she's confident in her, in her femininity, and she wants to show respect for God's design, and to, to do the opposite would be disrespectful. Is there any current application of what Paul calls shameful? Men trying to look like women, or women trying to look like men. Wow. Sadly, we're all aware that there is confusion about genders today by some, not nearly all, in our society. Uh, we read uh, the stories of biological males uh, claiming to be women who are competing and winning athletic competitions and overshadowing the, the uh, efforts of, of women. Children confused about their gender identity and their ideas and, and fears or whatever are somehow confirmed, made to be valid by psychologists, professors, even doctors, and undergoing uh, radical surgeries that some have already deeply regretted, but they cannot reverse and those kind of things. And so as a Christian community, we, we, we need to, of course, understand this distinction and, and, yet, and then find our way to appropriately appear dress um, in, in our day with distinction and yet in, with fashion and, and modesty. Of course, the uh, Bible speaks of modesty for, for women, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3. So the differences uh, are, of course, biological. That's on one level. We, we get that. God created them male and female so that society would uh, reproduce and, and continue and fill the earth. But it's also spiritual when we realize that this is simply God's good and wonderful design for, for, for romance, for sexuality, for babies. And so it's a, there's a real goodness in God's design that, that there are two and only two genders that are complementary, like puzzle pieces that, that fit together and makes the whole picture. So verses 4 to 6, it said, make sure that when you come to worship that Women look like women, men look like men, and you're honoring, respecting God's design. So verse 7, so the man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. What is that saying? Surely that's a put down of women, right? No, it's not saying that women do not um, glorify or bear the image of God, but there's a distinction Paul, of course, knows Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as, as Nate read earlier, that uh, both man and woman were created in the image of God. But there is a distinction. It seems that, that men and women best glorify God in their distinctions, in their distinct roles. 
He, man, is the glory of God. So it's like man is personally accountable to God to glorify God. But what about the woman or a wife? The woman is, a glory, is the glory of, of man. I mean, that's got to be a compliment, right? This, this is a compliment, ladies. You bring glory to God as you bring also glory to man. If you're a married man, good for you. You have this, this uh, beautiful creation of God on your arm, holding your hand, following your lead. Be grateful, men, because she brings you glory. She brings you glory. And just as, I, I, what I see here is that just as in verse 3 it says that God's glory flows down, right? God, Jesus Christ, man, woman, God's authority flows down, God's glory flows up through that line of authority. So the woman definitely glorifies God, and if you're a married man, you're just lucky enough to catch a piece of her glory as she glorifies God in your relationship. You're associated with her. She is associated with him. Creation order makes the point, Paul says, verses 8 and 9. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, it's a reference, of course, to the original creation of Adam first and then Eve. Eve is made from the, from the rib of Adam, Genesis 2. So that, that, that's, a, that's a support for the fact of this creation order. It's great if you, if you read in Genesis 2 um, about the creation of, of woman, uh, there's a revelation there that you can read, you can hear, you can read in black and white God's thoughts. Isn't that great? That's really what the Bible is anyhow. You can read God's thoughts. What was God thinking when he created woman? It's amazing. So after creating man, God said, this is my paraphrase, this guy needs help <laughs> if you leave him alone it's not good. <laughs> Something like that. Some of you know that uh, Priscilla has been gone the last several days to see family, kids and grandkids in St. Louis. It's not good for Sid to be alone. First of all, he doesn't know where stuff is. And uh, so before she left, she had to show me, like, here in the freezer, this would be, you could eat this. Uh, things like that. Pretty basic. I uh, officiated at a, at a wedding yesterday. And so for the dinner, I was seated with a bunch of men. It, it's okay, right? But I was missing my glory. I was missing my glory. She brings me glory. Uh, when, when, when she's not there, I'm missing that peace. And it, as she relates to me with respect, it makes me better. And so if, if, uh, if you see anything good in me, thank her. Seriously. But I have a responsibility then. I have a responsibility before God to lead her spiritually best so that we can best glorify God together. And so both husband and wife in a marriage need to glorify God. And in a church, men and women together want to glorify God. And so then the order that God has created is, is not a problem, it's a blessing. And so he points to the creation order, man first, then woman first of all. But then he gives another reason, verse 10. 
There's a passage with so many interesting phrases. For this reason, you know, Adam first, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have the sign of authority, shawl, or whatever, first century Corinth, on her head. Because of the angels? I mean, again, sometimes in Scripture study, you just have to be humble enough to say, I'm not really completely sure what that means, but I have an idea. Different, different people have, have, have uh, looked at this, and I, I, I see something here that angels are watching us. Do you know that? Angels are, are observing mankind. They're servants of God. Hebrews 1 says, on behalf of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14, look at that sometime. So angels are watching us. Some examples. This is, a, this, is a, this is kind of a description of this verse in Ephesians 3. It says that God is showing the angels his glory and wisdom through the church. Why? Because angels don't have church. That the manifold or, or multicolored wisdom of God would be manifest to the, to, the, to the spirit world through the church. Angels don't have church, so they're like, are you kidding? You can actually glorify God on a sinful world because they live in a, in a non-sin environment, but the church is actually... Glorifying God in spite of all the sinfulness? That's, that's amazing. They marvel. 1 Peter 1 says how angels are curious and they marvel at salvation. Why? Because angels don't get saved. There was Satan and the angels that fell with him, one and done. They're out. They had a perfect environment. They had no excuse. There are no angels that get saved. And so they look at salvation and say, you've got to be kidding me. God has such grace that he saves sinners. Amazing. They're marveling. Jesus said that angels don't marry. Why? Because angels don't have male and female genders. So I think what this is saying is that since angels don't have genders, they look at the distinction and they go, wow, what an amazing plan that God can give this man to this woman. They are so different and, and, and they're amazed that we get along too. So they're in awe of God working his plan out in so many ways. That just seems to make sense to me. That they, It's because of the angels that, that when, when we function well they are impressed. So ladies dress in a way that respects God's design that those sometimes bumbling creatures who don't listen well and make mistakes nonetheless God's at work in them, and he is using them and working in them profoundly to help lead you and the church. And even the angels are in awe, men, when you take and step up to the bat, to the plate, and, and, and you are effective in spiritual leadership. So, verses 2 to 10 have made the point of distinction pretty clear, and, and yet Paul has to know how that how that can now kind of sound to women. So it's interesting that he's, he has kind of a counterpoint, kind of a, kind of a nevertheless, however, uh, statement now in verse 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, that's the rib, so also man is born of woman, birth, but everything comes from God. So he says you can work this illustration Another way, in the Lord, that's key. In, we're all believers, men, women. So in the Lord, we're not independent. So if not independent means we are actually dependent. 
or you could say interdependent on, on one another. So equal value in Christ, not lesser. One needs the other because not, not only did woman come from man, rib, verse 8, but every little boy is born of a woman. And so both genders derive from and are dependent upon uh, one another in spite of their, their differences. Spiritually equal. Other scriptures, of course, bear out that point. Both bear the image of God from creation. We read that earlier. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, plural. Male and female, he created them. Paul wrote to the Galatians how there is equal status and value in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, the racial differences, neither slave nor free. That can be like economic or status differences. Nor is there male or female gender differences. Why? Because we're all equal or one in Christ and unified, so there's no greater value. This is not inferior or superior. And so that we have our verse, too, that nevertheless, in the Lord, woman, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. Understanding Scripture this way is something called complementarianism. Ever heard that word? Complementarian or complementarianism, that men and women in their roles biblically are are different but equal, but there is a distinction of, of roles. That's, that's the view that we would take as, as a church as well. There are um, some Christians who claim a view they would maybe call egalitarianism. That is, that if, they are, if men and women are equal in value, then they must of necessity be able to have all the same roles. We don't take it that way. We see the complementarian uh, view. So verses 2 to 10 is taught the differences, equally valuable, church is not a man's club. Um, and I'm confident that the reason why our men through the years can come up with decisions, the elder men, can come up with decisions that benefit the whole body is only because their ideas and their sensitivities have been shaped by the women in their lives which is why it is so important that one of the biblical qualifications for elders is a good marriage, a one-woman man, someone who, who leads, manages his household well. Because if a man cannot function well with his wife at home, he should not export his selfishness or his frustrations uh, to the church family in his leadership. Well, Paul closes this section with yet more, uh, one more illustration which was helpful then, a little confusing maybe uh, to us. But it's an illustration of wrapping up his point. Judge for yourselves, verse 13, is it proper for a man to pray to God with his head uncovered? That's review. And the answer should be, oh, of course not. And so here is his illustration. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering? That's his illustration. And then he gets like kind of the punchline at the end. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So he says, yeah, I'm really, I'm really serious about this. We need to be, be, be doing this in church, okay? But uh, so what's this about men... It's disgraceful to have long hair and women to have short hair. That raises a few questions and eyebrows, I suppose. 
Um, is this a command for today or is this an illustration of, uh, of something? I think it's an illustration. Um, some have supposed that, oh, maybe this, this is where you, where you find out that the covering really was about hair, not about cloth. I, I don't know, the, the word cloth was used before, a cloth word was used before, the covering word, and this is hair. Uh, so, um, so is Paul saying that uh, men with, women with shorter styles or handsome men with long hair are out of God's will? Uh, some can take it that way, and if that's how you understand that and want to honor that, that's fine, that's good. Some churches actually have rules about that, we don't. But part of the reason is, I, you have to remember in, in Scripture, in Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, there were, there were men who actually were set apart for God in the, with a Nazarite vow, if you've heard of that. And they were to intentionally let their hair grow long as part of their commitment to God. It's not like an obvious sign of, of, of ungodliness to have long hair. Uh, Samson was an example. Uh, you know, he, he kind of had good and bad side there, but uh, John the Baptist was, it seems, a Nazarite. And even uh, the Apostle Paul seemed to support the Nazarite vow concept. Read sometime in Acts 21, verse 24, he was trying to display that he was, he was truly Jewish. And uh, there were like these four men in Jerusalem who, it seems, were coming off of a Nazarite vow. Some of those vows were not lifelong, but temporary. And he was going to pay for their haircuts. Did you know that was in the Bible? Acts 21, 24. So it seems like this is not about long hair so much. He's simply using this as an illustration in first century Corinth in general, and it's still somewhat generally true, isn't it? Men have shorter hair, women have longer hair, and he's using that to say men should look like men, women should look like women. So whatever your hairstyles, it would say by application, I think, by principle, just keep that in mind. But he's, his main point is that men are under the authority of Christ and therefore are responsible to lead in a Christ-like way. Accountable to the authority of Christ, responsible to lead like Christ would lead. And women are to respect that effort to lead uh, in a godly way. I think we need this difficult passage in a couple of ways. Two of the, the overriding principles seem to be the issues of authority and the issues of identity. Let's talk about identity first. Everybody wants an identity, something that they kind of can say, that's, that's mine. And so throughout human history, and it's of course true now, people are seeking their identity through something. Uh, money is a real typical one. Yeah, I can, I can make money or have money. Uh, job uh, performance, yeah, that can be a great identity. I'm a whatever. Uh, skills, you know, I, first place medals, you know, athletic stuff or whatever the skill, computers or whatever. Though, though that, that's, that's identity uh, for some. Um, I don't know, there's, just, there's so many ways that we try to find identity in, in something. I mean, good looks or whatever. And some people, I think, as they struggle and don't seem to create an identity through those things, are looking then for things, you know, that are really out there. Even maybe I was, maybe I was born into the wrong gender. And so it's, it's, it's this search for identity that is our, is our struggle, I think, as mankind. Maybe I'm stuck with, with being a guy or being a girl. 
Who are we? What is our identity? What does it say in verse 11? In the Lord. In the Lord. Our first, our first point of identity is that we are believers in Christ. By faith in Christ, we become children of God. And you are a child of God if you have put your faith in him. And that's the baseline of your identity. But there's even more beautiful layers of our identity beyond that. So God, in his wisdom, not only has decided to save you through Christ, but then he's given you gender. He, he says, you're going to be a woman. You're going to be a man. You're going to be short. You're going to be tall or whatever else there might be. And so God, in his, in his un, undisclosed wisdom, made those decisions too. He says, you have an identity as a, as a believer. You have an identity in your gender. We come to chapter 12, and he's going to say, you know, the body is made up with all different kinds of people, different kinds of gifts. So part of your identity will be the way you serve Christ best. And so your identity is in Christ as a believer. Your identity is in your gender and your appearance. Your, your identity is in how God has gifted you. And now you have purpose. And, and that's the only way people will find their value is understanding how God has given them this identity. But with that comes, of course, the issue of authority. And, and we, we, could, we don't need to debunk that. 1 Corinthians 11 is saying to us, there is spiritual leadership. As the Father leads the Son, the Son leads men, men lead women. And so, men, it means someone's got to say in a family, honey, we're going to follow Christ. That's what we're about. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be a part of the body of Christ. We're going to go to church. We're going to fellowship with this, this church family. And we're we're going to care that our kids will follow Christ. We want to glorify God. And men, if you're a believer then, and you believe in the headship of Christ, then you're going to have to make Christ's priorities your priorities and not put your, your wife, if you're married, into a position of struggle where she doesn't want to usurp your leadership, but she's more interested in spiritual things than you and, 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 and wonders how to do that. So, so lead her. Lead her. Encourage her by showing your own humble submission to Christ. And God is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, marvel at your plan for all the little glimpses we get of that plan. We see a beautiful earth, and we know that many times we uh, maybe don't take great care of it here or there. You have a great plan for our health and bodies, and we don't always take great care of that. You have a great plan for, for marriages and families, and, and we all in our roles fail there too, Lord. You are a gracious God. But help us whenever we think of our um, place in your great universe to keep going to you, never to lower our standards, never to um, think lightly of how you have appointed and, and led and guide us, guided us and, and to accept and, and, in, and embrace the identity you give us in Christ and in, in our gender and in our responsibilities and, and privileges of serving uh, the body of Christ, raising families and all that, all that you've designed for us. And we thank you for your great glory in that. And may we uh, fully embrace and glorify you through 
our relation, our submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen.